This morning our sermon is coming, or our sermon, sorry, our scripture reading is coming from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be reading the first 27 verses. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Amen. I'm going to welcome Mike up to the pulpit now. I'll hand it off, he'll be preaching, and then I'll pick up after he's done.
Good morning. It's good to be here this morning with you. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray for guidance. Father in heaven, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, may it pierce our hearts. May it transform us. May your word cause us to desire you more and want to follow in your ways. Lord, may it inspire us to be faithful to share the gospel with those around us and be inviting people to church. Father, we long to see your church grow. Lord, use us to that end. Father, as we Hear your word proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that uh, you will guide us to hear that which you would have us to hear this morning. May your hand be upon your servant as he seeks to proclaim that word to your people faithfully, uh, that all might be edified and that you would be glorified. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life of the light life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was was He of whom I said, as He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Trinity. Uh, What does this word mean? What what do we mean? What what, what do we make of this term? You know, we just sang out of Trinity hymnals, right? Uh, We um, have all been asked to affirm that we believe. Uh, that this uh, idea, uh, or the, what, this, what was represented by this term is, is biblical. Any biblical church will ask her members if they believe in this. The classic definition of this term is that God is one in essence, or substance, and three in person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all equal in power and glory. And yet, when we say these words, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, Certainly, 
Any new members class in the OPC will include a discussion of the subject. We sing from the Trinity hymnals. We sing about the Trinity. We sang the Holy, Holy, Holy this morning. It's God in three persons, the Blessed Trinity. Um, you know, it's a word that, that shows up in popular culture. You have the Trinity Foundation, or, you know, I think there's a, it's a woman's name. I think there is a, a, an organization in a comic book series named with that name. But, again, we, we, we all know that this word represents a doctrine which separates evangelical churches from uh, pseudo-Christian sects, and yet we probably all struggle uh, in getting our minds around this doctrine. Uh, and it probably is not surprising that evangelical Reformed churches struggle with this. One famous Bible teacher named G.C. Burkauer said that talking about the Trinity is a little bit like landing an airplane in fog at night. Uh, you can sort of see these lights that sort of tell you where the left and right of the, the runway are, but you can't really see the runway. And you know if you go too far to the left or if you go too far to the right, you're going to crash and burn. But if you go right down the center, even though you can't really see where we're exactly where we're going, uh, we, we, uh, we're, we're safe. So although many texts of the Bible, including our text, especially this text this morning, you can see certain aspects about this doctrine being taught um, or illustrated in some way. There is no precise doctrinal formula in our, uh, in our Bibles that um, try to give a comprehensive summary of this doctrine. Of course, the word Trinity itself doesn't even show up in uh, our Bibles. It's a made-up word, tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one. Um, historically, this, this doctrine has received quite a, a bit of abstract uh, philosophical development, and a lot of that has not been so helpful or practical. Maybe it's even to the point where uh, you might look at the doctrine of the Trinity as something that's somewhat mysterious and incomprehensible, and, and so that it's, it's sort of irrelevant to me, except that you know that if you deny it, you'll get excommunicated from the church. You don't want that to happen. So, uh, um, in any case, it seems maybe so a little impractical or abstract and maybe not so relevant. And so the title of the sermon today is The Trinity in Missions. And, and you might ask yourself, what do these two things have to do with one another, except that we know that the triune God commanded us to engage in missions? Well, I want us to, to think about this and, and, and realize that this doctrine does have a very practical aspect to it in relation to missions. And you might say, so what is this? You know, I know, well, Jesus, of course, he puts these two together when he gives us the Great Commission. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so right there, as Jesus is giving us this command to do missions, we have the triune name of God placed before us. And interestingly enough, if you look at that passage in Greek, it's just like the English. You know, it says the name. It's a singular noun there, right? It's, it's, it's a one, right? And yet, following the word name, that singular noun, you have Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit. It doesn't, doesn't say names, but says name. So it's very interesting. Uh, you know, something similar in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we read from Genesis 1 this morning. And the very beginning of 
the Bible, the very first verse of the Bible, in some ways is quite a reflective of that. Um, it says, in the beginning, God, now the word God in Hebrew, grammatically, if you look at it, it's Elohim, and, it, and it's actually plural. Now, we don't translate it gods because the Old Testament scriptures don't treat that word as plural, even though the im ending, right, is actually a plural ending. Maybe, you know, in English, we have a few words from Hebrew, like seraph, the plural is seraphim, right? And cherub, the, the plural is cherubim. Okay, the im ending makes it plural. So Elohim, that Hebrew word, really is plural, even at least grammatically, even though it's really it's treated singular. In fact, grammatically, if you look at the sentence, even though Elohim is plural, the verb is singular. And so it looks a little bit like a grammar mistake. You know, um, maybe some homeschooler families here and they're teaching the kids about basic grammar. You know, you can't say God creates the heavens and the earth or God create the heavens and the earth. Those are both, you have a you know, subject, object, um, not so subject, verb, um, uh, disagreement, right? They, they're supposed to agree. Um, that, that doesn't work. And so when they look at that very first sentence in Hebrew, it almost looks like there is some sort of grammar problem. And maybe... As um, our text this morning is clear that John chapter 1, 1, John is reflecting on Genesis 1 as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write chapter 1. And in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, just to repeat it again, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and, and darkness is over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there light be light, and there was light. You know, these passages in John and in Genesis, there, there are a lot of actually parallels there if you, you look um, carefully. Um, they both begin with the words, in the beginning. They both speak about creation. Uh, they speak about light. Um, and also, it's interesting, maybe John is conscious of that odd grammar in the Hebrew, when he writes, in the beginning, the word was God and was, was with God and was God. And that's also, not necessarily a grammar error, but it's also something very odd. Uh, we don't usually speak this way. We can't really speak that way. You know, if I, I say, I'm Michael Austin McCabe, and I am with Michael Austin McCabe, and I say that several times in public, people will probably haul me off to a mental institution or something. What are you talking about? That is very odd way of, that's a very odd way of talking. Um, no one can say that. It doesn't seem to make much sense. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time this morning to talk about the word word in this passage. Many of you might know the Greek word behind it is logos. But uh, it's enough to say for now that it's clear from the way that, the, that John uses this in, in verse 14 that that word word is referring to the eternal Son of God who be becomes flesh and dwells among us in the person of Jesus. Uh, really, that's what the book of John is all about. Uh, maybe if you read the book of John in the future in your devotions, you're going to be thinking about that. These few verses at the beginning of John really set up the rest of the book. And while John doesn't set forth a formula of the Trinity, doesn't try to explain the Trinity to you, 
what you see in the book of John is God, uh, uh, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, t- showing you the Trinity, um, and not as a formula, but as in, in narrative. That's really what the book of John is all, all about. At the time when John was writing this gospel, there was a pseudo-Christian cult developing, which eventually was referred to as Gnosticism. And in this false philosophy, this false religion, um, they considered that the creator of this world was bad. You look around and you see all kinds of bad things happening. You see people doing bad things. You see natural disasters and diseases and all this stuff. And people are saying, yeah, whoever created this world, he must be a really bad guy. Uh, and so they had this weird idea about there's original, original God and out from him there were these lesser gods that emanated from him and, and out of, from them came lesser gods and lesser, lesser, lesser. And then the lowest guy on the totem pole, that was the, the guy who ended up creating this world. And so we don't worship him. We worship the original God. And Jesus is a manifestation of the original God or at least one of greater emanations uh, originally from God who has come to save us. And so... You know, this world in which we live is evil and bad, and the, the creator of this world is bad, but this other, uh, closer to the original God, he came to save us. So now here in John 1, John 1, we, we can see a distinction between the Father and the Son. Um, the Son is not less than the Father, nor is the Father less than the Son, and both the Father and the Son are involved in creation. Earlier we confessed the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you know this, but it begins with the words, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. It has those words in there, especially to reject the Gnostic heresy and saying the God that we worship is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created. Now, John 1.1 1, 1 is a little different. It says, the word was. The word was not created or come into being, but was always there. It was there at creation. Um, this contradicts the, the, the Gnostic idea that, 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 that uh, something later or, the, or these emanations were something later. Also, it goes against uh, Jehovah Witnesses. You may, you may have uh, um, run into them. Maybe they come knocking on your door. They would... Their Bible version is a little different than ours and say that Jesus was a God and they deny that Jesus and the Father uh, are, are one or and they're, they're the same in, in, in their essence um, and say that he, the Word, was created. Uh, but this passage very much goes against that. They were both the Father, the Son, were both from all of eternity. They're both involved in creation, and neither was created. In fact, the Word is not created, but in fact creates. Genesis 1.3, God speaks a word, and there is light. Here in John 1.3, it says that through the Word, God creates all things. And so the translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses have the word was a God, not only is it a bad translation that violates the rules of grammar, uh, but also makes this passage somewhat meaningless. And what is a God anyway? Why would you want to be concerned about a God, whatever that might be? 
Although the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in, in John 1, it's mentioned in John, Genesis 1-2, uh, upon which uh, John is reflecting. And later on, it's clear in the book of John, when the Holy Spirit is referenced, that likewise, the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. So now as early teachers of the Bible and the church reflected on these things and tried to summarize them by saying that God is three persons and one in essence or substance, um, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, But again, what does that mean for us? When I examine men for the ministry, I talked a little bit about that in in my uh, Sunday school presentation. Uh, But part of my ministry is examining men for the ministry. And one of the questions we ask is, well, what's the difference between a person and essence? You know, if I were to ask you, what's the difference between your person and your essence, or your personality and your essence? How would you answer that? Well, we're using these words in very technical ways. It's rather difficult. Now, the idea of a person is not so difficult, I don't think. That, that uh, is what we're used to. Each of us are in d- distinct individuals, distinct persons. Um, you can see it illustrated the baptism of Jesus. In the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus, he is being, uh, the, 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 uh, is there, present, and the Father speaks from heaven. The Father is speaking, not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. He says, this is my son. He speaks in the first person of himself as, with the word my, and then he speaks in the third person of the son. Um, so there is a distinction. And then the, the Holy Spirit is descending from heaven, not the Father, not the Son, upon Jesus. And Jesus is being baptized, and the, the Holy Spirit is descending upon him. So there are three who can act in some ways independent from one another. Um, the Father can speak in the first person and speak to Jesus um, uh, of the Jesus in the third person. Other places in John, John Jesus prays to the Father. He used the word you to refer to the Father. And so there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. There are three who can act and, and speak of themselves um, uh, distinct from one another. Um, but what about essence? You know, what does this word mean? How do, how do we speak of this? Um, how, how are they one if they are three? Well, this is really where you kind of have to land the plane in the dark. Uh, it's a bit mysterious. But there are many passages in scriptures that speak of the fact that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord is our God. The Lord our God is one. Isaiah 43.10-11 says, Before me there no God was formed, no shall the, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44.8 Is there a God that beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So as we reflect on who God is and his most basic nature, but basically, most basically what he is, he is one God, not many gods. There is none beside him. When we, we come to worship we, God, we do not worship gods. We don't go to three different temples to worship the Father and another to the, whole, the, the, to, uh, the, the Son and another to the Holy Spirit. We don't pray them in different ways as if um, they have to be worshipped in different ways like the pagan religions. They would worship the sun god and the, the god of the oceans and whatever and they would have their different places of worship and different means to worship them. Um, 
Sometimes they would fight according to their, their religion. They would fight amongst each other and there were lesser gods and greater gods. Uh, we acknowledge that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have the same attributes and are not more powerful than the others, and they, nor do they fight with one another or have children with men or something of that uh, nature. Um, and so whatever other gods that people may claim to exist, we say that they are nothing but idols. And if there's anything spiritual behind them, these things are but demons. It's important to, to pay attention to what Isaiah writes when he says that there is no other Savior. There's one God and there's no other Savior. The first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Savior. You shall have no other gods before me. So in that verse, you see a, a, a little bit of history of God saving Israel, God, saving his people out of Egypt, and to not have any other gods before him. Why do we have no other gods? The, the theological basis for this commandment is that there is only one God, and therefore there is only one Savior. Worshiping any other God is of no value because only the true God, only the one God in the Bible can save, only he does save. Uh, he saved Israel out of Egypt and he saves all who place their trust in him. And so all other so-called gods are powerless to save and therefore are worthless as God. And so your worship should be reserved for God and God alone. Now that may not be a very politically correct message today, right? Um, the common thought amongst many today is that all religions are created equal, right? Uh, we all worship the same God, but people from different places have different names and way to describe this God and to worship him. Uh, and of course, you know, whatever you think is true is true for you. And there is no standard outside yourself to say one way or the other if anything is true or false about God or gods or whatever. To claim the exclusivity of the God of the Bible as the only true God, well, that is unthinkable. And yet the scriptures boldly proclaim that there is one God and all others with such a claim are false. Now, in ancient times, just as today, there were... Lots of different ideas about uh, you know, polytheism or, or similar kinds of ideas about, well, your God is good for you and my God's good for me. That's kind of thinking. And in fact, you can even see that a bit in the Old Testament. You might assume that uh, the ancients thought, okay, their God was the only God and, or their gods were the only gods and other gods were false. But uh, actually, in the Old Testament, there was this concept that you know, amongst many of the pagans, you know, this place or this people, they had a God and we have our gods and this other nation over there, they have their gods. They're all different and uh, they worship them in different ways. That's their way, but you know, our, maybe our God is better or cooler than their gods, but they kind of exist too. So, for, for example, in 2 Kings, just one example, 2 Kings 17, the Assyrians forced others, nations... Uh, to live in Samaria, they, 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 they took the Samarians, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they forced them out, those people living there, and then they imported other people from other places to go to, that, uh, to live in that area. And because they worshipped idols, the God of Israel plagued them 
with attacks from lions. Now, of course, they didn't like that very much, and they realized, you know, well, we need to do something about this. So what are they going to do? Well, what we got to do is we got to go and get some of those Levites and bring them back and teach the people here how to worship the God of this land uh, because apparently, you know, the God of this land is unhappy about us worshiping our idols. Um, so they didn't necessarily deny the existence of Jehovah. They just thought he was one God amongst many. many. But the first commandment and the fundamental confession of Israel and of the Christian church is that this kind of thinking is totally wrong. And we are not to have this kind of thinking. And this really forms the basis of the Great Commission, for having a Great Commission and the mission of the church. If there is only one God, if there is only one Savior, well, then all nations, all peoples need to know about this one God and Savior. The first commandment applies to all. There is only one God, and that God is to be worshipped, and only He is to be worshipped. If the Word, the Son of God, the light of life of, of many, became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus to redeem his people from their sin and grant them to be right to be children of God to all who receive him, then those whom he has redeemed from their sin should love him, serve him joyfully, because they know that he is the only God and that the only he has the power to save and to bless them. He is their only hope. He is, on, your, he is your only hope. And knowing this should also cause you to desire to share this great joy of salvation with those around you uh, who are still lost in their sins. If we see some amazing deal on, on TV or some of the advertisements, we get excited about, oh, wow, I can get this really, really cheap product. Where, you know, it's really great. I'll go tell my friends, right? Because it's great and we think this is something people should know about. If we are truly of the mind that we have found salvation in Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. Well, that's better than any deal we can uh, see on TV or in the advertisements. And we want, would want to share that message with those around us. Now, you might encounter a Muslim. Maybe that, that's an increasing likelihood in our day and age with many uh, Muslims immigrating to the United States. They'll come to you and say, yeah, well, that all sounds nice and good, but um, in fact, you Christians, you really believe in three gods. How is what you believe really different than tritheism? We Muslims believe in a God of absolute unity. So how do you respond to that? Well, it is admittedly a difficult thing, except that this is what has been revealed in scriptures. Now, some Christians have taught that you know, simple philosophical reflection alone should be able to cause us to believe that God is at least a, a binity or you know, of two persons and one, uh, because God is love and beside itself to express itself. Now, actually, I think that's somewhat wrong thinking because, um, in fact... The Bible teaches us that we can love our neighbor as our, our love our neighbor as ourselves. We can love ourselves. We can have an inward directed love. But there is something to this 
thinking. It's a little bit backwards, I think. It's like, it's, the Bible, when it tells us to love our neighbors, it is an outward-directed love, that we are to, and that, that God himself illustrates within the triune God himself what kind of love it is that we are to have. The Trinity teaches us that the love of God is an other-directed love and gives us a model for love. Now, the God of Islam either only has an introverted love for himself or is a God dependent upon the existence of something else in order to express an outward-directed love. And therefore, he's not self-sufficient. And so, the God of Islam is a, not the God whom we worship um, and is a deficient God, a God that is dependent on the creation or one who simply has an inward focused. Consider another passage John in John, John 17, 18 through 26. I'm actually going to read through 23. It's a little bit long. Here Jesus, the Son of God, is praying to the Father. He says, I'm just going to read 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but for those who you will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Now, these verses are, 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 are full of all kinds of very complicated things, and we could spend a lot of time expanding on what is, has been said here. Uh, and these verses actually are in some ways expanses of what you see in, in, in John chapter 1. Especially that Jesus prays that the love that exists between the Father and the Son would be in the hearts of believers. And so there is this distinction between the Father and the Son. There is this love between them. And Jesus is praying that that love would be in the hearts of his people. That that love would unite his people together. Now we're also in the earlier, in the book of John, we we are very familiar with John 3.16, says, God thus loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So there is this love there between the father and the son, and that love is extended outwards towards his people. And that love that exists between the father and the son, which extends outward to the world, really becomes the foundation for missions. How is God one and three, singular and plural? Jesus prays that his people would be one as he and the Father are one. That they would be perfectly one. Now, it is true that we as God's people don't become God, nor are we united in the same exact way that the Father and the Son are united. Polyinity, uh, together as as God's people. But at the same time, there is some reflection in the love that we share together as as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is some reflection of that relationship that exists within the triune God himself. We are one in Christ. We are one church. 
yet we are many in membership. One uh, believer can never say to another, I am you and you are me, nothing like that, or I am with you and I am you. But in some way, there is some reflection that occurs amongst God's people of the triune God in his internal life, in the life of God's people. Pay attention especially to verse 21 where he says that the unity for which Jesus prays, that this unity, this love that exists within the church would then become a tool by which God will redeem his people. That the world will, be, will believe that Jesus is the one sent by the Father. As the world looks at the church, looks at you, sees the love that exists between you, that reflects the triune God, this should provoke people to worship the one true God. So it should be characteristic of you as a church that your love for one another should attract those outside the church and point them to the, the triune God whom you worship. We live in a world which is full of all sorts of divisions. Um, if you turn on the TV and news at any time of day, it's pretty obvious there's all sorts of conflict in this world. Now, from the time of the Tower of Babel, uh, these divisions have especially seen between different nations and ethnic groups. Rather than love for one another and unity between these different groups, there is hatred and mistrust. You know, God divided the nations to dispel the false idea that there can be any unity of man that is based in rebellion against God, or from that matter, anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even within these nations uh, that sort of are united together for their own purposes, there, um, even within families, there is fighting and disunity as the product of sin in the heart of man. And yet because man is a relational being and because he needs the cooperation of others for his protection, his own protection and the fulfillment of his own needs, he seeks out at least some unity with others. And yet... The unbeliever never really finds real unity. That unity that we share as believers is unique because it is in Christ. And that is the only real, true unity. And so you, redeemed in Christ, you, the church, should provide an example of true unity based on the salvation of the, in the triune God. The bond of this unity is a love that God has planted in your hearts for one another, a love that flows from the very essence of God himself. It's not based on ethnic or ethnic unity or national pride or identity, but one based in our union with Christ. At the time that John wrote this book, many assumed that the unity of God's people was to a great degree based upon their ethnic identity as Jews. But in verse 20 of John chapter 17 that we're looking at, John says he John Jesus prays that. He's not praying just for these, the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word so that the world might believe. The word world obviously is more inclusive than just the Jews or Jewish apostles. Now, in our own day, there is much discussion about diversity and inclusiveness. Some of this talk is good and helpful, and some of it isn't so much. 
Certainly, any kind of ethnic pride or ethnocentrism that causes one to look down on others of a different race or cultural background, uh, that this is a sin that it needs to be repented of and we need to be uh, wary of it. The attention that the world has given to the subject should cause you to be circumspect about your own opinion of yourself, your nation, uh, your ethnic group, and take care not to fall into the trap of hateful pride or racism or cultural elitism. And yet, for all the talk that the world has about diversity and inclusiveness, there just seems to be more and more divisiveness in the world. And really that's to be expected because there's no real basis for unity outside of Christ. True unity comes reflects the love that, that exists between the members of the triune God. And outside of Christ, this unity does not exist. If you go back to our, our, our original text this morning in verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, there's another important theme that's introduced. It says, Jesus says, Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, two things here. First of all, Jesus was generally rejected by his own, particularly referring to the Jewish people, though in fact maybe all mankind might be rejected. Jewish people. In any case, the right to be the children of God was not the exclusive privilege of the Jewish nation and her citizens, but to all who believe. Those who believe are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Their identity, their birth, their citizenship is not derived from physical birth, but a new birth that comes. God. In John chapter 3, John, uh, John picks up on this idea when he can, or Jesus, yeah, 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 John picks up on this idea when he re- reports the story of Jesus confronting a Pharisee, a kind of Jewish leader at the time named Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus here that one must be born again in order to see, or maybe better to perceive or participate in and to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, maybe Bible teachers argue a bit about what the exact definition of the kingdom of God is and what Jesus means by the kingdom of God, but one thing is very, very clear. It ought to be very clear to all of us. If you could go back in time to 20 AD and walk the streets of Jerusalem, and you would go out and ask a Jew, what's the kingdom of God? Or maybe better... Which kingdom is God's kingdom? Because in God's kingdom and kingdom of God in the original language is, is indistinguishable. Which kingdom is God's kingdom? Well, they would say, well, Israel. We're, we're God's kingdom. We're God's, we're God's people. We're God's, the citizens of God's kingdom. Now, how can you, you be born of that, that kingdom? How can you be born an Israelite? Well, how are you a citizen of that kingdom of Israel? Well, you're born into that kingdom. You're... Your, your, your parents are Israelites or Jew, Jews, then you are a Jew too. You remember a citizen of that nation. If you're born 
of parents who are nationalities is American, and their children are American as well. That's generally the case throughout history of any nation. If you are a citizen of that nation, your children are citizens of that nation as well. Now, Jesus here, in speaking to Nicodemus, he's confronting Nicodemus' false notion was that he was born a Jew and maintained that status with good works. Well, then he's okay. He was in with God, so to speak. He, he, had, he was part of or had a claim to God's special nation or kingdom. But Jesus stating here in these verses that ethnic heritage does not count much before God. Being a member of God's kingdom requires a different kind of birth. And this second spiritual birth is not one that's exclusive to Jews, but to all who claim the name of Christ. Later in that same chapter, as I've quoted before in chapter 3, it says, God thus loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. As others have said before me, it's not race but grace. It's not race that brings salvation or true unity, but the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising then, if you turn over chapter 4, when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. Of course, Samaritans at that time were, were looked down upon by the Jewish people. They were sort of half-breeds, a mix of Jew and Gentile ancestry. And a woman, especially one who was an adulteress, who had been an outcast in her own country, Jesus, amazingly, he goes to her and speaks to her and, and uh, says something about who he, his identity was as the Messiah. And through his witness to her, she becomes a believer. Jesus takes time to speak to her, and she becomes a follower, a true child of God through this encounter. Now, because the order of Christ's ministry was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, it was not until not till chapter 12 that you see Gentiles, clear, clearly Gentiles, coming to faith in Christ. But there, it's interesting their place in contrast with unbelieving Jews. And then that chapter finally ends by saying, Jesus saying, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So as you read through this gospel and the other three, you can see all sorts of people coming and believing. There's a great amount of diversity. You can see men and women, young and old, Jew and Samaritan and Gentile, the noble class, the rejected, blind, lame, and able-bodied. All of these different kinds of people were hearing the gospel and believing in this one God proclaimed in the scriptures. And yet in all this diversity, Jesus prays that there would be unity. And Jesus calls you to that unity as well. Not a unity based on humanistic sentiment or a live-and-let-live attitude which ignores human sin. Not a unity that pretends that all gods are the same and that ignores the truth that there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, in the name of Jesus. But it is a, a unity in the love of Christ between fellow believers. A self-giving unity that places the needs of others before ourselves in order to reflect the unity and love of the triune God. Throughout history, people are constantly trying to build a kind of unity based on national and political unity, um, often which is 
based upon a, a co common enemies, a hatred for common enemies or people whom we fear. Or, or they simply use the, the fear of the sword. If you don't get along, we're going to put you to death. And so they, they, they use these tools in order to uh, bring about a certain kind of cohesion in society. You know, if we go to China, you can see both of these things being used. You know, there's quite a bit of, a lot of people there, and there's a lot of different people with different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, and, and uh, even amongst the ethnic groups, there's, you know, different ideas and what have you, but there's one thing, one thing that they can all kind of agree about, right? The Japanese are our enemies. <clears throat> so we can unite about that. Whatever we may, difference it may have, with that, the Japanese are enemies. We hate them. We've got to focus on uh, uh, whatever troubles we have. We've got to focus on that. Reality, and of course, there's all kinds of TV shows that play that up, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, and then of course the sword is there as well, as well to to make sure that if there's any dissent, um, we put that down. And to a certain degree, there is um, authorized in Scripture uh, that the the, the the state does have the power of the sword or coercive force and in order to promote a certain amount of order within society, especially to those who bring about civil strife or disloyal. So there's, these things exist, and there's a certain, certain even authorization in the Scriptures for some of that, uh, for the, 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 the worldly government, governments to use. That's what, you know, what we see in Romans 13. So worldly kingdoms use these methods to attain a kind of outward unity, but these things should be foreign to the kingdom of God. The unity of those who are supernaturally born again and are given a new nature that loves Christ and neighbor finds a new basis of unity. It's a unity from the triune God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that is brought about by the grace of God. Looking back again at the morning's text, uh, we can see a little bit of this in verses 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, a whole sermon could be devoted to, to this particular um, verse, and I don't have time to explain it in detail. But I think a theme which John introduces here is developed throughout this gospel. When discussing Moses, it's a complicated matter. We, we, we acknowledge, as we read the Old Testament scriptures, and the this, the, the, the Torah written by, down by Moses. Uh, we can see the grace of God there. It's not as if grace is completely absent from Moses. Um, uh, and we, we see uh, God's sovereign salvation of his people. On the other hand, you can see God using Moses to establish Israel as a body politic, as an earthly nation. And as such, Israel made use of the sword or coercive force and even in a kind of ethnocentricity to establish a kind of outward, for, or outward kind of unity. Now, of course, there was always the spiritual reality of God's grace present throughout the Israel's history. And yet, you can see throughout the history of Israel, again and again, the failed attempt of the nation to keep itself united uh, through the application of the law and the, the, the civil penalties that uh, exist in it and then, of course, fighting against their, their national enemies. But especially in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, we see a better basis for unity. 
a unity that's based in the love of God, which exists between the Father and the Son and, it's in the, and the Holy Spirit, and extended to and implanted in the hearts of the people of God by the grace of God. And then that becomes a, a tool by which this love that we have for one another becomes a tool by which we reach out with love to, to unbelievers around us and invite them to participate in the unity which we enjoy. Well, I know that that's a lot for us to chew on this morning. I've gone through a lot. Maybe you have to listen to the sermon a couple times to, to digest it all. Um, but uh, I want you to see that this all has to do, very practical, practically to do with, with missions. The God who is one in three, singular, plural, one in many, seeks to establish a church, a kingdom, which is itself one and uh, one in three, one in many, excuse me, and singular and plural, and one and many. Um, uh, it, it is one in Christ, one in love, and yet many in members. It's a kingdom not defined by ethnic or economic or cultural or racial, racial or geographic boundaries or border walls or what have you, but it's one made up of all sorts of people in all sorts of places in all sorts of situations. And it's the calling of the church in love and uh, love of God and love of neighbor to pursue a mission to all these sorts of people. That must mean that you must make a point to reach out those maybe who, to those who are maybe you feel a little bit different from yourselves or for some reason with whom you might not want to naturally associate. Whatever good there may be in worldly means of seeking unity in the nation, they have no place in the church. The means of seeking this unity in the church is the preaching of the, the gospel and the teaching of the grace of Jesus Christ and the unity that we have in Christ. This gospel teaches us that man outside of Christ is united mainly in one thing, sin. And it's only the power of Jesus Christ to transform us that we can experience freedom from that sin and experience true unity with God and neighbor. Therefore, it is the mission of the church. It is your mission to seek God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and you need to make that known, that gospel, trusting in the grace that only Jesus provides, for it is the only power that you have to proclaim that, God, uh, God, that gospel with power and faithfulness. And it's only in that gospel that we can display the true love of God and the unity that we have as God's people and use that also as a tool by which to draw people to God through Christ, in, in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we uh, meditate upon these, these complicated things, as we um, reflect upon, uh, at times, our own lack of zeal for the gospel, for oftentimes lack unity within the church, um, uh, owing to our own sinfulness, Father, forgive us. Father, implant in us today a greater measure of your love, that we might love our neighbors and our brothers and sisters and um, uh, be zealous to proclaim the gospel and live out that gospel within the context of the church. Oh, Father, use your word as it goes forth from this church to transform many, that many might be drawn into your worship and that uh, the, your kingdom might be built up. And that though it may be diverse in many different ways, that, Lord, that there would be unity as well. And that unity would be a, a light to the nations around us 
that they would be drawn to you. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.